Thank you for being here this morning. We are so glad that you're here. We are thankful that we have visitors with us. As always, we invite you to come back and be with us. We are honored that you've chosen to be here today, and we want you to know how much we appreciate your presence. If you are looking for a church home, we would encourage you to consider the work here. We would be grateful if you would join hands with us and help us to do all that we can to make Christ known, not just in this community, but around the world. We're going to be looking in our study today, the passage that was read a moment ago, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. And in connection with that, we're going to go back and look at the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 6. The theme of our study today, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. The beauty of Scripture is that God has a system whereby He deals with people. God has always dealt with people the same way. Whether it be going all the way back to the period of the patriarchs, down through the Mosaic dispensation, and then as we make our way into the Christian dispensation. There are components that work hand in hand, and if those components are present, ultimately it leads to great blessings by Almighty God. And so in Joshua chapter 6, we have the account of the children of Israel going in and taking the city of Jericho. Now you remember God had promised His people that they would inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. God had made that promise to Abraham, who was the father of the Hebrew nation, back in Genesis chapter 15. It would be through the lineage of Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed, that is, through his posterity. And so, God had told Abraham that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land, a strange land, for some 400 years, after which they would come out with great substance. And so the book of Exodus reminds us of the deliverance of the children of Israel by the great hand of Almighty God. As a matter of fact, Moses records the fact that God delivered them, brought them out of Egypt on eagles' wings. And Moses said, He brought them unto Himself. God entered into a covenant relationship with His people, and the goal was to place them in that land that He had promised. Moses, the great leader and lawgiver of ancient Israel, you remember because he failed to obey God, prohibited from entering the promised land. He got to see it, but he was not allowed to go into it. And so in Joshua chapter 1, we have God speaking to Joshua and announcing to him that Moses, his servant, is dead. So the mantle of leadership would then fall upon Joshua. He would be the one to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And God said to him, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what great assurance God gave General Joshua in the long ago. And so in chapter 6 we have Joshua 
leading the children of Israel into the city of Jericho and taking that city. So we're going to look at some of the components that made that a reality. I want to call attention as we begin today, and we're going to be talking about some traits that are found not just in this text, but also in the New Testament, because they go hand in glove. So first of all, I want to talk about the liberation of God's grace. Note, if you would, in verse 1, Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. Jericho was one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. Geographically speaking, it was some 17 or so miles northeast of the city of Jerusalem. Joshua and his people are going to take this city. But note, if you would, what the Bible has to say about God's amazing grace. The text says in verse 1 that none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. God here saying to Joshua in the long ago, I have given you the city of Jericho. I've not only given you the city, but I'm, I'm giving you the king and all of its mighty men of valor. That city is going to be yours. Well, what about God's grace? Typically we talk about the unmerited favor of Almighty God. God doing for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. To understand that we enjoy liberty because of God's matchless grace. You remember in Titus chapter 2, Paul would say in the long ago, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man. You and I today have been the recipients of God's amazing grace, haven't we? Without which we would not be saved. As a matter of fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 said that God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loves us, even when we were dead in sin, has made us alive together with Christ. He said, by grace are you saved. Raised us up together with Him. Made us sit together with Him in the heavenly places. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. And so God said to Joshua in the long ago, I'm giving you this city. You and I today, we have access to salvation in Christ Jesus. Our hope rests upon one person. That's the Son of God. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. The apostle said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, recorded by Luke, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So God's grace has been lavished upon the human family. 
That grace has been extended to the entirety of the human family. As Jesus said during His earthly ministry, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. The promise being, I'll give you rest. You remember Paul said that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Rather, Peter said that. Paul would say that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's God's goal. God's grace liberates. That's what we find in Joshua chapter 6. God has announced to the children of Israel, I have given you the city of Jericho. Now there's a second thing. First, God's grace liberates, but secondly, it educates. I want to just emphasize or maybe re-emphasize a point. Wherever you read about the grace of God in Scripture, you need to understand it is always accompanied by teaching, by divine instruction. God always educates people about how they can access His grace. So with that in mind, listen to what the record says. In verse 3, God said to Joshua, You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. The seventh day, he said, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Then it will come to pass, when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Imagine if you can, you're a young cadet at West Point, and they're talking about, from a military standpoint, the strategy of entering a city. Let's say a city in the Middle East. What if they told, what if the instructor told his students, this is how you do it? Why, they would laugh him out of the classroom, wouldn't they? I mean, have you ever read of that kind of military strategy in a textbook? Is that what they teach at West Point? Absolutely not. Well, what about the Naval Academy? No. But God said, here's how you can take this city. I want you to march around that city one time for seven days. On the seventh day, you're going to march around it seven times, and then the priests are going to, they're going to blow their trumpets. When I give the signal, you shout, and the city will fall down flat. I said a minute ago that wherever God's grace goes, it is always accompanied by instruction or education. God is telling Joshua and the children of Israel, if you want to take this city, then this is how you're going to do it. What does that require? It requires faith in God, doesn't it? The kind of faith that says God knows what He's talking about, and if God has promised that He will do something, He'll accomplish it, won't He? So what do you have? As we think about those of us who live under the Christian dispensation, 
I said just a minute ago that God's grace liberates, but it also educates. Because Paul said in Titus chapter 2 that God's grace has appeared bringing salvation to every man, and then he said teaching us or instructing us. Again, wherever God's grace goes, it is always accompanied by teaching. Do you remember Jesus in John chapter 6? In that context, He had fed a multitude of people. Five barley loaves and two small fish fed some 5,000 men. And Jesus said, It is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught by God. Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father comes unto me. John 6, 44 and 45. How then does faith come about? Well, Paul said faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So if we want to access God's grace, it would only stand to reason that God would educate us about that process, wouldn't it? Pentecost Day. Jesus had been talking about the establishment of His kingdom or the church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus had promised to build the church. He would build it upon that bedrock statement made by Peter that He was the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 19, Jesus said to Peter that I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Those keys not only given to Peter, but all the apostles. So you have the church beginning on Pentecost Day. The apostles, they are endowed with the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. Luke said they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what they're teaching those people on Pentecost Day is the inspired Word of Almighty God. Peter's going to indict them for having taken part in the crucifixion of Jesus on Calvary. But he said God raised him from the dead because it was not possible that death should hold him. Not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but he was made to sit at the right hand of God. So we read about his coronation in heaven, where he now reigns with all authority. As he said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority, all power given unto me in heaven and on earth. In verse 36, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that this same Jesus whom you crucified, note the indictment there, that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. In other words, He is the one to reign, to rule in the hearts and lives of people. Those who claim to be His disciples are going to acknowledge Him as their King. And then He is the Christ or the Anointed One. He's the one of whom the prophets of old foretold centuries earlier. The promised seed of Genesis 3.15. So then the Bible says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut or pricked in their heart. To understand that the Word of God has convicting power. In John chapter 16, when Jesus told the apostles, and really you need to take John chapters 13 through 17 as a unit. And Jesus is talking to the apostles here. He had promised that they would receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. And he said, after his departure, they would receive the Holy Spirit, 
and he would convict the world of righteousness. So on Pentecost Day, what do you have? Peter and the other apostles preaching the gospel, and those people were convicted of sin, weren't they? So based upon their conviction, they cry out unto Peter and the other apostles, and they want to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? Oh, you mean to tell me that there is something that you must do in order to appropriate God's amazing grace? Listen to what Peter said. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now that's what God said in the long ago. And God is saying to people of all ages that if you want to appropriate the marvelous, matchless grace made possible by the death of Jesus on Calvary, this is what you must do in order to be saved. Why? Because God's grace liberates, yes. But it also educates. Now, I know that there are a lot of folks that will say this. I just don't see, I just don't see how being baptized in water can wash away my sins. Well, let me ask this question. In the days of Joshua, what in the world did walking around a city six days in a row, one time each day, and then on the seventh day, walking around it seven times, what in the world did that have to do with the city, the city walls falling down flat? Other than God said, this is what I want you to do. So what we have to do is take God at His word to understand that by faith we respond to the teaching of Almighty God. And through that faith, because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, that faith teaches us that we must repent, that we are to confess the name of Christ, and then we are buried with Him in baptism so that we might contact what? God's grace, because Paul teaches in 2 Timothy chapter 2, at verse 1, that grace is in Christ Jesus. In verse 10 of that same chapter, he said that he endured all things for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. So salvation is in Christ. If I'm going to get into Christ, then Paul teaches, I need to be baptized into Christ. Are you saying then that the water is what washes away my sins? Not at all. The blood's what washes away our sins. But it's when we are immersed in water that we contact that blood. That's what the Bible teaches. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul said, Know ye not that all we who are baptized were baptized into His death. Those who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into the death of Jesus. Well, why do we need to be baptized into the death of Jesus? Because He shed His blood in death, right? So when I obey the gospel, when I follow the divine teaching of Almighty God set forth in Scripture, I contact God's amazing grace. Did I do anything to earn or merit my salvation? Absolutely not. No, I simply coupled with my faith and obedient heart. Do you remember in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul said, Thanks be to God that whereas you were the servants of sin, listen to him, you obeyed from the heart 
that form, that pattern of doctrine delivered to you. So when I obey the gospel, I contact the blood of Jesus, which washes away all my sins. Jesus shed His blood in death, John 19, 34 and 35. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according, listen to this, according to the riches of His grace. No wonder Paul would write in Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. God has provided a system for us wherein we can enjoy salvation, liberation from sin. That liberation from sin is made possible by education. But then there's a third thought, and that is God's grace regulates. What do I mean when I say the grace of God regulates? Whatever God says that we must do, then if we want to enjoy the blessings, then we must do it, listen to this, exactly like God said to do it. There can be no quibbling about it, no argumentation. What if Joshua and the children of Israel, what if they'd have said, well, you know what, we walked around it six times, I mean, that ought to be enough. Or, you know what, on the seventh day, we're going to walk around it five times. No, God said, I want you to walk around that city six days, one, one time each day. On the seventh day, I want you to encompass that city seven times. And then the priests are, are going to blow the trumpets of the ram's horns. When I give the signal, I want you to shout. And what's going to happen? The walls of the city will come tumbling down flat. Did they have to do it exactly as God set forth? You know the answer to that, don't you? What was it Paul said? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That means that in order to become a child of God, we have to have an obedient faith. In order to remain in Christ as a faithful follower, we've got to have our conduct regulated by His Word. You can't separate your life as a Christian from the Word of God. You can't do that. No, you remember Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. Well, how then do we show that we're His disciples if you abide in my Word? That's what He said in John 8, verse 31. So, to honor what God has said. You remember Jesus said on one occasion in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If God said to do it this way, why would I want to quibble about it? If God said this is what you have to do to gain entrance into the city, to take the city of Jericho, then that's exactly what you have to do to get the city of Jericho. To do things God's ways. Listen. God has not given us the liberty to alter His Word to fit our lifestyle. No, the command is that we are to alter our lifestyle to fit His Word. That's why Paul said the Bible teaches us that we are to deny certain things and that we're to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
Now, there's some people who have this idea that, you know, once you're saved, you can just live any way you want because, after all, God's grace is a license to just do as you please. Well, Paul dealt with that too. He asked the question, what shall we say? What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His response was, certainly not, God forbid. How shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? In other words, we died to that old way of life. If we've died to that old way of life, why would we want to continue living a life of sin? So in Joshua chapter 6, we read about the people marching around the city one day. And then verse 14 tells us, the second day they marched around the city once, returned to the camp, and this they did for six days. And then the text says in verse 16, the seventh time on the seventh day, when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And then drop down. Look at verse 20. The people shouted. When the priests blew the trumpets, it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, but the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. And then in verse 23, we find that Rahab and her family, they too were spared because she honored the command given by the spies. That's another lesson in and of itself. So God's grace does what? Well, number one, it liberates. Number two, it educates. Number three, it regulates. And number four, it anticipates. When Joshua and the children of Israel honored the Word of God, God honored His Word, didn't He? Here's the point. If we do what God says to do, will He not follow through with His promises? Yes. If God makes a promise to us, Whatever that promise might be, listen, he either will fulfill it or he won't. If he makes a promise and doesn't fulfill it, then we have a major problem, don't we? And yet the Hebrew writer said it's impossible for God to lie. Or in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul said, We live in hope of life eternal, which God who cannot lie. So when God makes a promise, he fulfills it. So in Joshua chapter 6, what do you have? God's saying, I've given you the land. In order for you to gain entrance into Jericho, to take that city, here's exactly what you need to do. They complied with the will of Almighty God, and what did He do? He followed through with His Word, didn't He? So you mean to tell me that when I obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, when I do what Peter said to do on Pentecost Day, and I repent and am baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins, that I can trust that God will forgive every single sin in my life. That's exactly right. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to question, well, did God really mean what He said? No, God said, if you do this, then I'll forgive your sins. Not only will I forgive your sins, but I will put you in 
the divine institution known as the church. Because in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Well, where are the saved? They're in the church, Ephesians 5.23. He's the Savior of the body. And the body is the church, Ephesians 1.22 and 23. Well, how many churches are there? Just one church spoken of in Scripture. Just one. The church that Jesus promised to build, that He bought with His blood. In Matthew 16, 18, and Acts 20, verse 28. So I can have confidence. Do you remember the Hebrew writer said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. If you have obeyed the gospel, whatever is in your past, and I don't care how deep and dark and dirty it might be, God said He'll forgive your sins. Not only will He forgive them, but He'll purge them. He'll never again bring that up to you and say, oh, by the way, you remember this? You remember that? Remember when you went there? Remember when you said that? That's not how God operates. No, when God makes a promise, He honors that promise. Go back again to Titus chapter 2. I said that God's grace anticipates Paul said we're to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for Himself a people for His own possession. So what about God's grace anticipating? Well, we can anticipate that when we do things God's way, He'll forgive us. He'll put us in the church. And then God made a promise about His Son, didn't He? Paul said to Titus that we need to be on the lookout for the coming of the Son of God. There are a lot of people today, if we were to talk about the second coming, they would throw up their hands and say, you're crazy. Are you kidding me? Well, let me tell you what, the Bible says Jesus is coming again. When's He coming? I don't know. Jesus said of that day and hour, knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. I don't know when He's coming, but I know this, He's coming. And Paul said that we look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is coming again. So God's grace anticipates anticipates the great blessings that we enjoy today, but also the blessings of one day being with God in heaven. When Jesus said in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Did Jesus know what He was talking about? Was that a promise to disciples of all ages? Yes. Peter said, based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a living hope. We have an inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It fades not away. And He said, it is reserved in heaven for you. God has made a place for you in heaven one day. So what about the walls of the city? Don't you think it's interesting that in Hebrews chapter 11, Faye's Hall of Fame, 
We read about all these great people in days gone by. And what did they do? They demonstrated faith and obedience. When they demonstrated faith and obedience, what did God do? He honored them, didn't He? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were circled seven days. Are you living by faith? In Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible talks about those who live by faith. But in verse 13, the Bible says, These all died in faith. When you come to the end of life here on planet Earth, the question will be, did you die in faith? You can either die in faith or out of faith. If the Lord Jesus comes, will He find you living in faith or out of faith? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ? To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. There's an abundance of testimony recorded in Scripture so that we might conclude that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. That's the Son of God. Do you believe that? Would you act upon that faith? God blesses people of faith, when they, when they obey. Don't ever read anything about an inactive faith. It's always an operative, active, obedient faith. That's the kind of faith God blesses. So, if you're here today and you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, would you repent of your sins? Confess the name of Jesus before others, and then be buried with Christ in baptism. Do you have, as Paul said, faith in the operation of God? That when you're baptized into Christ, God will surgically remove those sins, cut them away, never see them again. And once you're baptized into Christ, the exhortation is to be faithful, live for Him, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. If you're here today, and let's just say that your life has not been what it ought to be. For a long time now, your heart's not been right. You know, Peter said that one time to a fella. He said, your heart's not right before God. What about your heart? Is your heart right with God? Are you living for Him day in and day out? Don't think for a minute if the Lord comes or if you die and you're not living for Him faithfully, don't think for a minute that you're going to heaven. But if you're living for Him day in, day out, and you're serving Him to the best of your ability, listen, you'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Could we pray with you and for you today as we stand and sing?